Hello lovely people, how are you doing? I hope you're doing okay. Now, if life is making you feel a bit, well, disillusioned at the moment, I think I have just the person to keep you company as you walk, run, do your chores or however it is that you are listening. Andy Hyder, MBE, is one of the most thoughtful, kindest and determined women I have ever interviewed as a journalist. Andy was a single mum of three boys. She wanted to earn a bit of money and one day saw an ad for foster carers. She decided after finding out a bit more, well, it wasn't for her, but then she changed her mind. And thank goodness she did, because she went on to foster more than 100 teenagers over the next 37 years. There's not much Andy Hyder hasn't seen or dealt with when it comes to teenagers. She's had really tough times, like being chased by a knife, and she spent so many nights in the local police station, she got to know the security codes. But Andy also says she wouldn't change any of it. It was the best job she could ask for, and she has helped transform the lives of so many. Two years ago, Andy was awarded an MBE by the Queen after being nominated by one of her sons. Andy has seen how difficult life can be. She lost her own father when she was just two years old. I'll let her tell you about it. Just a warning, you may find it upsetting, but hearing what she has been through makes her story even more incredible. Andy believes everyone deserves the next chapter. It's always worth taking that first step towards something better. And if any of you are battling with your wonderful teenagers, well, there's not much Andy doesn't understand about them. And she shares some excellent advice. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Andy Hyder, MBE. Andy Hyder, MBE. Welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. I am Absolutely thrilled and honoured to have you with me. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm very honoured that you even thought about wanting to talk to me. So thank you. Well, why wouldn't I, Andy? Why wouldn't I? Because my goodness, I mean, I met you through my day job as a journalist, but your story is just incredible and I've learned more. So I cannot wait to share it. So we're just going to crack on and get on with it because there's lots to discuss. So I start as ever with the prologue. Basically, you were born and you your family home was in Launceston in Cornwall. Yes, but I, but I was born in Redruth. You were born in Redruth. And your dad, he was older than your mum, wasn't he? He was 13 years 13 older. 13 years. Yeah. yeah. And you already had two brothers who were much older than you. They were 18 and 20 years older than you? Indeed. Right, OK. And so you lived as a family, but your your dad died when you were just two years of age. He took his own life, indeed. Right, right. Which, obviously, Andy, I mean, I know this is something that you, and sorry to sort of dive straight into this, because but I do think it's very important in terms of what we're going to go on to talk about. Um, but if you, you didn't know this, did you, until not that, not a great length of time ago? It, that's true. My mother had already passed before I knew. My, um, the younger, my older brother had also passed. Um, my brother, who was two years younger, was actually dying with cancer. He was living in Torquay. And so I'd gone down to see him. And whenever we met up, because my mum was quite a private person, I suppose would be the best way to describe it. Um, she never talked very much to him about certain things. And there were certain things that I needed to ask him about, like 
growing up with my father because I would have had no idea about what it was like to grow up with my father whereas both my brothers being that much older they they did so we'd always have that sort of a conversation where I would tell him bits and pieces that my mum had told me family history stuff um, and then I would ask him questions about my father and um, on that particular day we were talking about superstition because my mum was very superstitious and she she causes me to walk around ladders and you know all sorts of uh, things bring in uh, have a, I have to have a dark-haired man come in with a lump of coal across the doorstep on New Year's Eve and goodness knows what else <laughs> so we were talking about superstition and I said that one of the things my mum had told me that it's unlucky to have lilac in your house and that she told me that when my father died um, she had to run out into the road and get help I imagined when she was telling me that story, I imagined he died. He was dying. Died, she'd found him dead in bed. Um, so she'd run run out into the road. She had to. I was only two years old. She put me down on the sofa. She tells me run out into the road, called for help. The neighbour came in, and the neighbour looked at the uh, fireplace, which was full of lilac blossom, and said, "You need to get rid of that because that's unlucky." Um, which was too late. My father was already gone anyway. And so when I'm telling my brother this, he, just, he was just staring at me. And I said, why? What are you looking at me? Why are you looking at me like that? Obviously, it was a shock. Um, took me a while to digest it. And the saddest part was that I couldn't ask my mum any questions. And, and also the intriguing part, I suppose, about it is that all the family knew. They all knew. They weren't told not to tell me. So nobody was told not to tell me. But they all assumed, including my brothers, that I knew this. Yeah. And I suppose it's not something you would just bring up in conversation, is it? No, of course so it's not. They would, so, they would, so no one would have spoken to me about it because it was a sore subject, I suppose. Because mm -hmm. he had fought in, in the First World War, hadn't he? So that, Indeed. So the story yeah. that you had been given was perfectly plausible and you didn't need yeah. to question it when you found that out I mean how did you how did I think you were age 60 when you found this out how how did you feel when you I was found gone out? I was gone 60 I think but I was in my 60s yes um I was then fascinated intrigued wanted to know stuff that there was oh of course my brother who just told me this the younger of my two brothers he was dying of cancer mm. and I didn't feel that I could you know give loads and loads and loads of questions to him oh Andy, i mean absolutely horrendous absolutely horrendous but it goes to show though what what comes on next though because you um and i'm so sorry i'm so sorry because that's such an awful this such an awful story it really is but you then you went back um well you went back to your grandma's in plymouth yeah, well, i guess we didn't move back immediately because my mum obviously had things to sort out yes move back to plymouth where my grandma was you moved to canesham when you were nine and so you lived with your auntie and your uncle and your grandma and your mum but you said you actually yeah. you had a very you were very happy you ha you were very very happy as a child <laughs> brilliant childhood which is a real testament given what had happened to your mum yeah, uh, and the, the, the fact that a brilliant she, childhood. you were then in Canesham, which is where I met you and where you still are today. Um, and you enjoyed you went to school and you enjoyed school, didn't you? You did. You did well. You passed your 11 plus. But you, you said that then you became the class clown pretty much. You 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 know, you had quite a lot of fun at school, should we say? Yes, I passed my I passed my 11 plus. I remember when I was leaving the school I was at in Plymouth that the headmaster. I can remember the headmaster telling my mum that um Oh, please, can't you leave her behind with somebody? She's going, you know, she's such a good scholar. So, I, yes, I did well until I got to grammar school. Um, and I think, I just don't think 
it sank in. I knew it was important for me to pass my 11 plus, but I didn't focus on, I had to continue working. So I think I was, I was there for the last class clown. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can, well, having met you, I can understand that you were full of fun. I can absolutely understand that. But you also, you know, you obviously enjoyed it and you, you loved English and art, you said. They were my favourite subjects, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, but also you had very much a country upbringing. So you were riding horses. You loved being outside. Then as you became a teenager, you loved music. You loved dancing. It all sounds sort of really very idyllic. When I saw the advert for fostering teenagers, which, of course, anybody that doesn't know, any, well, back then, anyway, all those years ago, 40 odd years ago, um, didn't occur to me that teenagers needed fostering. But because I had such fantastic teenage years, I felt that I could connect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We'll say we will come on to it because it's obviously fascinating. But I also think sort of knowing a bit of your backstory, it's even more fascinating because I hadn't been quite aware of what what happened. So then so moving into your first chapter. So you moved, you left school. Um, you said you didn't want to work in an office, but then you did work in an office and you became a civil servant. True. Yeah. And did you that enjoy the that? the last thing that I wanted to do. Did you enjoy it? Yes, for the, for, I mean, for the, the few years that I was there, because um, I then actually, the reason why I left the civil service was because um, I got married and my husband um, moved from working in Bristol to uh, Swindon. So we bought a house, our first house in Crickley. Um, so, yes, for the time that I was a civil servant. But what I enjoyed most of all it was making new friends, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. So you were based in the post office, is that right, when you were in the city? Telephone service? manager's office, it used to be called, in Union Street. Okay, yeah. okay. But then, so then, so like you say, you met your first husband when you were 16 and you were married at 20. Um, yeah. So then, did you leave that when you had your children? Sorry, no. We've gone. I'd already, I, gone. I'd already left the civil service before I had children because... Um, you moved. He'd been moved to Swindon office to work. So we bought our house in Cricklade. I had got another job then for, um, I, I was a buyer's assistant in a clothing company called Sharp Perrin that had moved, lots of companies moved down from London to Swindon um, in those days. And so I got a job then with this clothing company called Sharp Perrin and became a buyer's assistant. And I can't remember, I wasn't there for ever so long. And then I got pregnant. Okay, okay. And then when you had your, so you had two children, but you started doing some volunteering work, didn't you, with the homeless? That was when I'd moved back. So we, we were, so we, then we left Swindon um, and my first husband opened his own business in Canesham because this is where he had the most contacts, I suppose. It was where he was actually from Brislington. I was from Canesham. Um, uh, and then my marriage broke up and it was when I was on my own with the boys and my, the eldest of the two of my two sons that I had then was at school um, and my second son was at playgroup and I had a little bit of spare time and so yeah I, I rang around a few organizations and asked if they needed uh, volunteers and because I only had two mornings a week free um, nobody was really interested. And then I saw this advertisement in the Evening Post when you used to get printed copies of it. <laughs> and um, it's, it literally said, homeless, hungry people need you. So, I was just going to say I clicked on, but you didn't click on in those days. <laughs> <laughs> and you said when you, right. when you went along that first day, I mean, the, yeah. it was a real shock to the system, wasn't it? It was. It was. I had no idea that people lived like that. The smell, I can't... I, can't believe the smell 
it was in a basement in Albert Villas. The, the building's still there in St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the Cyrenians, the charity that uh, that ran the day centre and also the soup run at night, um, got its name from Simon of Cyrene, who apparently carried the cross behind Jesus. Oh, okay. That okay. was where the Cyrenians came from. Okay. And they, they now are St. Mungo's, or they emerged into being St. Mungo's, which is still working in the city. Yeah, it absolutely is. And this is, I mean, obviously this is where, the, the, you know, this was really sort of stirring something in you, shall we say, because you, you got to know um, the people you were helping. And like you said, they became they became humans at first it's sort of very That's daunting right. yeah. and then but then they became your friends yes and so you know I it didn't it only took me that one visit really I mean when I was shocked when I went back the second time I know that I probably the thing that made me go back was the challenge I suppose because I thought they would all say oh we won't see her again and um and I thought well I'm going again mm -hmm. and yeah and you did very very happy years working with the Cyrenians. Yeah, you didn't do, and you actually this is where you met your next husband as well. Was it? It is. Yeah. yeah. So he came as a volunteer. Um. To they had two in those days. They had two houses. Um. One in Totterdown, and another one in St Paul's. And he was working in one of the houses, and that's where I met him. But by then I was divorced. Okay. Okay. So then you you married and you had a third son. You had your lovely yes. third. You had your lovely third son. You thought yes. you thought at one point about being a social worker, but this But then I you realised you were expecting your third son, so that didn't happen. That's right. But but yeah. obviously you were being drawn. You were very drawn to helping people, weren't you? You you even if it was sort of unconsciously, you were. Mm, yeah, subconsciously maybe. I don't know. I just, I'm drawn to people, I suppose. Yes. Mm -hmm. So so then and then so you had you had your um third son. And then actually that marriage came to an end. So you were a single mum of three boys by this stage. Yeah. Um, and this is where we go into the next chapter, this incredible, well, it's just amazing. So you saw an advert. I, I think you were in a in your library. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I was. And, and, yeah. it, and it just dropped out like a sign, an advert for um, fostering teenagers. I've never thought about that before, but that's funny, isn't it? Because I saw the advertisement for the Cyrenians in the paper. I was in the library and a bookmark dropped out. Yeah, it was your calling. <laughs> Advertising fostering teenagers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so so you looked at that. I mean, most people, even at that stage, given... Because um, how old were your eldest two boys? Oh, gosh. Uh, when I started fostering, yeah. Um, my youngest son was... Four, maybe okay. just started school okay four or five yeah um and then that would have um that would have made my eldest son 10 years older and eight years older okay so you already that. were in the world of the teenage teenager so you can i can understand anyone listening to this as well who who has teenagers the idea that you've got your own teenagers and you're a single mum but then the idea of even you know contemplating fostering teenagers most people would have put that advert away and never thought about it again i didn't know that, i honestly did not know it was going to be as challenging I, I honestly didn't know that. Of course I didn't. You have to, it's the same with anything. You have to live with whatever job you're doing or whatever situation you're in before you can really understand it. So I, I hadn't thought it was going to be as challenging as it turned out to be, but I do. And with all the challenges that I remember, I do still love teenagers. I can relate to them because I had such a happy time in my teenage years. Um, I can remember all the angst, of course I can. And I had a strict mum who was having to be mum 
and dad to me because she was a single parent herself and I felt she was over strict and that I had to be in earlier than anybody else and that just wasn't fair um I remember you know the falling in love bit um and as I said I love music and dancing so yes I just I love teenagers and I this they have such a hard time they have such a hard time of it so I just wanted to give them a happy teenage years like I had Mm-hmm. And I mean, but so you went along to the meeting, to the first meeting, and you thought though, because because the because what it was, I suppose your I think you've said this before that your youngest son, you you know, you you wanted to be at home when your boys came home from school, and your yeah. eldest two were a little bit older, but you still had your young one who was just four, yeah. so you wanted to do something where you could be at home and you wanted to earn some, well, you needed to earn some money as well. So this is sort of how it all began. But then when you went yeah. to that first meeting, you did think it, this is not for me. I came home and said to the boys, <laughs> I came home and said to the boys, because George wasn't old enough to understand, but I, I thought naively, oh, well, you know, he'll be tucked up in bed um, when there may be problems or things to discuss in the evening. So, you know, he won't be involved with it. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so I discussed it with my first two boys, but not with my youngest son. Um, and when I came home from that initial meeting, the social worker who had run the meeting had talked about, funny, isn't it? The things that stick in your mind. Um, had talked about kids being so emotionally troubled and distressed um, that it was possible that they may smear, you know, in the bathroom, they may smear on the walls. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm not so sure about this now. <laughs> <laughs> so I came home and said to, said to the boys, I don't think this is for us. And just luckily, and it was luckily, that there was another social worker there, can't remember his name, he was from Western Supermare, and it's a guy, and he pursued me. Hmm. And he, he must have seen something in me, because as I understood it, there were over 100 people at that meeting in Avon House, hmm. big building, you know, that goes over the, the road at Stokes Cross. Um, and there were only two of us that actually ended up being foster carers wow. out of all of them. Mm, because it's so, honestly, it must be so sort of specific. And that they, but if they spotted it, he courted you, really, didn't he? You know, he persuaded you. He did, yes. It didn't. That didn't take necessarily so long. It, it, yeah, probably a couple of weeks, maybe, to think about it and talk to the boys about it. Mm. Um, and then I started the training. And the training itself took about six months. So about six months after that, then I was... I had my first young person. Okay. And so your your three, especially like the older two, they were they were by this stage, they were happy about it, were they? Because that's a big thing for them to have somebody else come into their home they were, with their lovely mum. They had you all to hurt themselves. And but yes, by this it, stage you had all got used to the idea. By that stage I was into bribery and corruption. <laughs> never and never. <laughs> uh, I, so, <laughs> so I said to the boys, look, you're gonna have to help me to do this. It's not going to be easy. Um, you know, you're not going to be unaffected by it. So if you're helping me to do it and I'm being paid to do it because I need to earn money for us to survive and pay the mortgage and pay the bills. So this is a job that I've got. I'm being paid for it. So I will give you double pocket money if you're helping me with it. And they like that. They like that idea. <laughs> and, and I have used bribery with my foster kids all along. I've um, given them double pocket money for good things that they've done. I've never taken their pocket money away from them. So I've always um, given them extra pocket money for doing good things like attending school. 
yeah. would be one example. Yeah. We used to call it full school week money. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, we're going to say we're going to come on to this because so that that but that first moment, that first uh, teenager that you had, do you? I mean, presumably you still remember it very clearly. I mean, what was it like when the first one came into your home? Um, it was exciting because it was a new chapter. Although I probably wasn't thinking about it like that, but it was a very big chapter and a very big adventure. Um, it was exciting, um, a bit scary. But also, I and I don't think I could have done it if I hadn't if I, if I hadn't been in this mindset. I was absolutely determined that I wasn't going to give up on anybody. Mm. So I worked it out myself that um, under this scheme that was called Teen Care, you know, this new new um, scheme that had been um, just started because teenagers nobody wanted them, so they were willing to pay. Uh, what they called a fee element. So foster carers up until then, they got, it would be called, I think, a boarding out allowance. So it would just be to cover their, their keep. But if you took a teenager that had problems, <laughs> then, uh, and you show me a teenager that hasn't got problems, um, you got paid a fee element. And I remember it wasn't, it wasn't much. It was a lot in those days for somebody who was struggling financially, but it was 60 pounds, I think, six zero a week. Um, but that, you know, that just enabled me to pay the mortgage and um, treat the boys a bit and treat the foster kids. And yeah. Mm, goodness me. But I mean, it, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a normal job, is it? I mean, this is not you're talking 24 hours a day. So you had your first teenager who came in. Was it a boy or a girl? A boy. A boy. OK. And I, and I had specifically said because I had three boys that I thought a girl would work out best. So I'd asked for a girl. And my first five, my first four children were boys right. my fifth one was a girl right 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 and how did your boys at that stage react to it um they were they were really really good um i mean as it happened the first young person that i had was a local boy he was a canesian boy so he didn't need any introduction to where to go or to find friends or he didn't have to change his school or anything like that. Mm, and you te they, were, they were obviously immediately starting to learn that while they had this very lovely warm home with their mum, that obviously this wasn't, and it must have been quite a lesson for them, that, that obviously other teenagers weren't as fortunate as them. Yes, uh, true, and they, and and one of them had to give up a bedroom. So, so you, initially, you, I, I think you said that you, um, you know, you really planned to do this just for a few years until your boys were old enough. Um, but yes. this didn't happen quite like that, Andy, did it? Because you actually carried on doing this for nearly forty years, thirty-seven years. Do you know how many children or teenagers you fostered in total? Oh, I wish I could. I wish. I wish. I wish I could have thought to keep a book and I could have got them all to sign it couldn't I they could have signed it coming in yeah saying how they felt how they felt about it and then they could have signed it going out and saying how they felt about that as well it wasn't very long that they started to give me you know an extra placement and then another one when when my middle son was at university in Exeter I used his room I had five at one time two of them were identical twins so they were just they just counted as one <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so um, I'm estimating between 100 and 150. 
that is amazing. I mean, Andy, this is, again, I think for people listening to this, especially ones with teenagers, where our eldest son is about to turn 12, and we're starting to see a few of the little signs, but, you know, we're not into the heart of it yet. But, I mean, this is, um, I mean, it's sort of beyond, it's just beyond sort of comprehension. And now I know, and we're not going to focus just on the negative side of it because I know the, the amazing times you have which we we will also talk about but you've also been very honest that it it wasn't always idyllic was it you know you did at one point you were chased by a knife um like you say you had at one point eight children under your you know in your care you were a single mum you often you had to go to the police station every day so much so I've heard a interview with a with the local um the man who used to work at the local police station and he just knew you you know you you knew the codes to the police station because you were in there so often so you had you know you had to lock up your post to make sure that that wasn't stolen you had to lock your bedroom door there they were there were tough times in this it wasn't sort of just this very idyllic situation but at no point ever did you ever think about giving up and you sort of just took it all on board, really, didn't you? Because things become a way of life to you, Ellie, don't they? Um, and it became a way of life. It was, and the longer it went on, the more it was just normal for me. It was, you know, when when friends came to visit, they were always a bit on edge, and couldn't understand what on earth I was doing. Um, <laughs> when they had to keep their eye on their handbags and things, <laughs> but. Um, for me, it was it was normal, and I and I absolutely loved all the kids. Yeah, you did, and I know you did as well. But I know absolutely know, and I've met um, some who you did foster, and I know what they think of you as well. But so in that, I mean, if if you use that as an example, that incident where you would where you were chased by a knife, and I think one of your sons was there as well. I mean, that using that as a moment, you know, a lot of people say, do you know what? Enough is enough. This is crossing the line. You know, I need to keep my own children safe as well here. But you didn't. And how how did you cope with that? And how did your sons cope with that? How, you know, what what was your mindset as such to be able to come through that? I think just, uh, you know, just hearing you recall it like that isn't possibly exactly how it felt to me, because um, as a foster carer, you also I mean, the, the kids, they all have their uh, social workers looking after them. Um, I also always had a supervising social worker. So it was the job of the supervising social worker to be looking in from the outside, I suppose, and saying, as they did, Andy, enough is enough. You know, this... And, and they weren't ever saying to me to give up fostering, but they were trying to encourage me to give up on a particular placement, a particular young person whose behaviour was what they would have called beyond what foster carers should have to deal with, I suppose. So there were those situations. Um, and yes, I had other people on the outside looking in, like friends and relations who were saying, this just isn't fair on your own children. Um, I'm lucky now that I'm in a position where in retrospect, I can look back and I can say that I truly do believe that, encouraged, that it encouraged my own children to grow into much more caring and understanding adults that they have become. I'm so proud of them because of everything that they've been through, because they had to share me with so many people, because they could see that there were reasons why people behave in certain ways. And when, once you can see the reasons, you know, you say you're, you're thinking you've got a 12 year old coming up to teenage years, that's much more stressful than looking after foster kids because you, 
with your own teenagers, um, you blame yourself. You say, well, you know, well, where have I gone wrong? Why, why aren't they listening to me? You know, but with with foster kids, you've got all the paperwork that's showing you where things have gone wrong for them in their lifetimes. Yeah. And so you can understand because it comes out in behavior, doesn't it? The way that you're feeling inside is going to come out in your behavior. Mm. Same with us. And did, so, did you find it, it, was it different for when you were dealing, that's really interesting you say that, when you were dealing with your own boys who, um, as they were teenagers, did you feel differently dealing with them as opposed to the teenagers you were fostering? But, much, much worse, because I, I would blame myself for anything that went wrong with my own children. Um, and I also believe for, the, for a mum, maybe this is sexist, but it's not. It's an actual fact. We are the ones that carry the babies. Um, they come through us. Um, and I think that I, I really feel with mums, the umbilical cord is never cut. Mm. So, you know, whatever your own kids are going through. I didn't have an umbilical cord that was still attached to my foster kids. So yes, it was completely different. Mm-hmm. When you when a when and obviously every single one of those, but you know, over a hundred children um, or teenagers when they came to you, everyone is different. But did you spot similarities? And could you could you see when someone arrived? You did you? It's like, do you know what I know? What I have to do here, and you you could understand it. You could see through it. Well, as time went by and I I became more experienced, I suppose that that would be the case. Um, but I, I very quickly learned that to start off with, um, they were going to be testing me because everybody else had let them down in their lifetime before. And who was I? I was no different. I was going to let them down as well. And so I knew that for maybe the first, I don't know, six months, maybe, possibly. And as you say, every child is different. It varies with every child. Um, I All I could do really was just sort of hold them. Um, I couldn't make any big changes in their life. I could just hold them and I could just stay there and be there for them. And so it would take a different amount of time with every child. But you could see that they would think, well, you know, I've I've done this, I've done that. I've thrown this at her and that at her. And she's still there. Well, that's a bit strange because people are usually gone out of my life by this by this time. And then you can start to work with them and make make changes in their life because they begin to understand things. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, again, I'm focused on the negative and we're going to move on to the, the so much positive. You wouldn't let them get away with it, would you? You know, if, if there, were, there were boundaries, you were, I think you gave them a lot of leniency when we've spoken in the past, but also there were boundaries. So if something was wrong, absolutely, that you go to the police. But also the police, mm-hmm. you worked with the police because you kept a lot of them out. Of, you know, they could have gone to prison and gone down a different yeah. route, but the police knew they were coming back with you. So they, they ended up, coming back to you and it could have turned out very much very differently couldn't it it was it was the magistrates in the courts that knew got to know me in the end and one magistrate in in bath actually said to me andy um when i as soon as i see you i know what i'm dealing with and um i'm not going to give a custodial sentence because i know they're coming back to you and i know that you will make sure that um you know that, that, that they're okay and that they it's a better option than having a custodial sentence i suppose mm. yeah. and when in that moment um this is obviously not dealing with your own teenagers de- dealing dealing with the foster teenagers but you must have learned so much and anyone listening to this with teenagers now you know when the buttons are being pressed now i know you say with, with the foster ones it wasn't so much but there must have been times where you were pushed to your absolute limit if, especially you're on your own and you must have been exhausted and drained 
what did you do? How did you cope in those actual moments? What was your kind of coping mechanism as such? There would be times when it was too scary to be, even remain in the house anymore. Um, but you see, that I, I felt that that was the advantage of having teenagers. If you foster younger children, you can't go out of your house and leave them. But teenagers, you can. And so sometimes for that cooling down period, I needed to I needed to be away from the situation. I would go out and walk the dog. I would be worrying about what I was coming back to was the house smashed up because the temper was still there, but it would have been too dangerous for me to have stayed. So I would get out. So that would be one coping mechanism, I suppose. Um, putting my arms around them and hugging them would, would probably not be advised, but I'd do that as well. Mm-hmm. Even in the middle of the, you know, whatever was going on. Um, you can sometimes, just by hugging somebody, you can feel the tension draining from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all sorts of different ways, depending on the, the young person. And you were very much, as you said, you loved being a teenager and you're very much a, a free spirit yourself. I know, you know, you'd go into the police station without wearing any shoes or, you know, with your lovely coloured skirts. And so you weren't you weren't frightened. You know, we, we all sort of think this, don't we? It's probably the way we're brought up as well. It's like you have your rules and how dare anyone break our rules. But you you had a, a totally different approach to that, didn't you? Well, I did have house rules that were important to have. Um but I still think that the more rules you have, especially in that, in my situation with uh, foster teen- teenagers, the more rules that I have, the more are going to be broken. And then you'd be out of control. That <laughs> I don't know, it would be absolutely more chaotic than it, than it actually was. So I would keep the house rules to a minimum. And that was to have respect for everybody else that lived here with us. So to respect us all. Um, no violence and no alcohol and no drugs. Mm. Of course, they, they, of course, they did bring drugs in and alcohol in uh, without me knowing or with me finding out at a later time. But those were the rules. And, it, and if the rules were broken, yeah, there were sanctions. Mm-hmm. And, you're with your, and did you treat your own boys the same? Oh, gosh, yes. And in a way, I feel sorry for... I, what, this is a crazy thing to say, whether you put it in or not. It's up to you, Ellie. Um, with the sleeping, you know, with the sleep, which you boys get older, with the sleeping with girlfriends is concerned, I felt really sorry that, you know, my, my, particularly with my youngest son, when we got to that age, um, you know, he was in long-term relationships and yet he couldn't bring his girlfriend back to sleep with him because it was a house rule. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't let the foster kids do that. Yeah. So I couldn't front of them say it was all right for my own son to do it yeah yeah and I know how you know it it obviously has to have a great effect on on them in a positive way but in those moments and they were teenagers themselves and whatever did they ever just have moments where just like you know what mum I've had enough of this I've just had enough my I will I will say that my eldest son left home pretty quickly um and that's a bit sad um so, yes, yeah, so he got his own flat at, at a younger age than maybe he would have done. Mm. But that did help in in the fact that he and his, his younger brother, so my, they, they fought continuously. I don't know about your boys, but they fought continuously. <laughs> and it was only when um, my eldest son moved out that they developed a really good, close relationship. So, you know, there was some good. Mm. There's always positive that come out in negative situations. So Adam didn't experience the fostering anywhere near as much as my middle son and my youngest son did. Um, and um, as for the time 
of them saying to me, come on, mum, enough is enough. I think that's why I'm so proud of them because they never ever put me in that situation. There were times when I thought is enough enough and this isn't fair on the boys, but they never ever asked me to give it up. And they were always, um, even if I couldn't get through to my foster kids, they'd have a go because they were a similar age. Um, they were absolutely amazing. And, and by the time my youngest son had, um, had gone off to university and he was living and working in London, and one of my uh, ex-foster kids had moved to London, and he was living on the streets in London, I'd get phone calls from either from the hosp a hospital in London or from the police station in London and where they would have him. Um, and then I would ring my youngest son up and say, oh, you know, he's... Um, He's in this hospital or he's in this police station. He needs cigarettes. He needs underwear. And, and my youngest son would go and get whatever it was he needed and take it across to him in mm. London. And he, you know, that, that young person actually died mm. uh, on the streets in London. Yes. Um, and, and it was down to us to organise the funeral. Um, yeah. Mm. And that must be so hard for you to do. And, but presumably you had to get to a point where, because you fostered so many when they left you, you couldn't feel responsible for all of them? No, and the majority didn't want to leave. But, and that was awkward. So how did I deal with that? I had to say to them exactly why they couldn't stay, was that if they stayed, I had no more free rooms, so my job came to an end. And if my job came to an end, I had no more wages, so I couldn't pay the mortgage and I couldn't pay the bills. So that was the reason why I couldn't allow any of them to stay on. Mm. And, and, and in practical terms, put like that, they understood. Mm. And I had to also say, there's not enough of me to spread around all of you, but I'm here, you know where I am. So if you need me, you come to me. But I'm limited to the amount of contact that I can make to all of you because there are so many of you. Mm -hmm. You have to be strong. Again, it's all about the boundaries. Someone listening to this, I mean, yeah, um, you know, who who does have teenagers of their own and, you know, as lovely as they are, they do. You do have moments where you just probably boils down to fear, isn't it? You get frightened for them if they're not sort of aware of their safety or, or what, whatever it is. They want to do things that you don't mm. want them to do. Those moments, you know, when you are triggered, you know, and all parents are and like you say mums, you know, it's such a moment. What would you say for them to think in that moment? Like, listen, we've, we've listened to Angie Hyder. She's dealt with more teenagers than any of us could ever imagine. What would you say to that person to think of in that moment when they feel utterly triggered and, you know, they're going to lose it? I would say to them that they're not doing it on their own. So if you come into fostering, you've got a whole team of support around you. So you've got social workers, um, team managers, um, you've got therapists, you've got a whole team of support around you. So even if there was a situation in the middle of the night that you couldn't deal with, there's an out of hours uh, number that you can ring uh, with the particular uh, fostering agency that I worked for, which was called Amicus. Um, we were only a small agency. So even on our out of hours numbers, those people that the social workers that were on out of hours in the middle of the night, they knew all of our kids. And so there was a tremendous amount of support. And of course, I wouldn't have been able to have done it without that support that was there for me. Mm. And somebody who isn't fostering, but is just dealing with their own teenager, what would you say to them in those moments? I would say, um, pick your arguments. You don't need to have a battle about everything. You know, there are, there are other ways of 
dealing with things that you disagree with with your child about. Um, so pick your arguments and make it only the really, really important things where your young person is endangering their own health, uh, safety or their own health or other people's. Um, but there are smaller things that you can probably deal with without having world war you know about it mm -hmm. because also you did have and so much fun as well didn't you and so much they brought whether as much trouble that came but there was also so much joy and you absolutely loved it didn't you yes of course um yes it's it's not all negative in fact i would say the positives definitely outweigh the negatives um you know when it when a child's never been to the theatre before, never even had an ice cream before, um, you know, situations like that that they haven't experienced and you're experiencing it with them for the first time, not celebrated Christmas before, I had one. Um, so I got her own Christmas tree in her room and yeah, it's, it, it, it's the best job in the world. And you must have loved it because, I mean, you did you did give up an awful lot, Andy. And I know you w wouldn't say that and you wouldn't say it was a hardship. But, you know, you you didn't, you know, your own life, you you didn't have a social life, did you? You were always at home. You didn't necessarily go out and meet anyone because you're, you're, you felt your responsibility was to be at your home to make sure your teenagers were getting home, didn't it? So you really did. You, you, gave, you gave up an awful lot for this. Yeah, my life was on hold, definitely. When I look back now, my life was on hold. <laughs> and there was one, one foster child, he used to call me Ur indoors because I was always Ur indoors. <laughs> <laughs> and you're such a glamorous lady and, you know, full of beans as well. So I can imagine at times perhaps you didn't want to be her indoors, but you loved it. And you, I know when we've spoken in the past, you wouldn't change it for the world, would you? No, no, I would not. I'm, I'm so happy for um, the opportunities that I've had and to share in their lives. It's been an honour for me. Mm -hmm. And you've even had the children of children who you fostered come yeah. to you as well. I fostered the child of a mother that I fostered, yeah. Mm -hmm. She was my last one, actually, when I retired. Uh, when did I retire? Summer of 20. Not COVID has made me lose my memory. So not last summer, the summer before when I was 75, because I'm 77 this summer yeah okay okay well we're going to move on to this now to, to your be continue because yes you have retired and you are all set to retire and quite rightly as well um but then like you say so so covid happened so for your to, to be continued now what do you plan to do and i'm really hoping you're going to just be indulging and pampering yourself probably not um but i it has made me become aware and i don't know whether that's because of covid or because of retirement from fostering but it made me come become aware of my own mortality i think more mm. uh, well of course and my advancing um age as well has made me feel like that but um just to as i think i said to you just to be able to live and all, people in covid are thinking that they have had two years and rightly so of not leading a normal life um but for me <laughs> the normal life has been not having to lock everything up not having to go out in the middle of the night to the police station and pick up a young person um yeah so so i'm 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 loving that part of it mm -hmm. and and when i hear back from them when i when they get in touch with me um that's a joy as well in itself so i haven't got any big plans other than to spend more time hopefully 
uh, with friends and with my grandchildren, maybe, although they're growing too fast now as well. <laughs> because because also what you have seen and what you've been through, you know, you know that it is the simple things, isn't it? That they're the treasures in life. Um, yeah. Because to, to have uh, to see somebody feel safe in a home, to see somebody turn from being very angry to being calmer for you, that just must be the most, you know, that's the gold, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That is the goal. And uh, maybe maybe I wouldn't have realised that myself if, if my journey had been any different. But because of the journey that I have had in my life, um, I certainly know how to treasure what I have. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of treasures, that also in 2020, I believe, you became an MBE. That was that was quite amazing. Um, I think I've said this to you as well, but I did find out that I had been nominated twice before, um, you know, years ago, years back. And I don't know whether I would have accepted it then because it still does bother me a bit that I'm actually, you know, I've got the MBE, but all the foster carers deserve it as much as I do. Um, but because I knew I was retiring, it did feel like a pat on the back. Mm-hmm. Um Mm. And, and that was nice. That well, was nice. I'm sure anyone listening to this thinks you absolutely deserve it, and then some. But I did have to smile when I heard the story of you when you collected it from none other than the Queen. <laughs> but Andy, this again doesn't surprise me because you don't seem much of a rule follower. Going back to you being the class clown, but you didn't stick to the rules, did you, when you picked up your MBE? Oh, I, 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 I intended to stick to the rules. Of course, I did. <laughs> I, I'm. I didn't even realise until I watched the video back because you get given a video. Um, although my son, uh, my middle, and that's another thing, that's another tribute to my son was that all through that fostering and everything that I put him through, he felt that I deserved it. So he was the one that nominated me. Um, yeah, that was my middle son that nominated. So I was able to, because you're allowed, not these days, it's different now. The queen doesn't do it anymore. I got the queen. Um, Quite right. And, and also I think they can only take two. They might only be able to take one. I'm not sure. Guess with them. And that's, of course, because of COVID. Um, but I was allowed to take yeah, how many? three. Wow. So I, they reckon on you having a partner, don't they? Well, I didn't have a partner. Um, so I was able to take all three of my sons. Wow. That was absolutely wonderful. And how yeah. was it? I mean, how, for them as well, it just all what the four of you have been through together, you know, that just yeah. must have been such a moment for you all. It was absolutely brilliant. And I... And I you have a little uh, run through of what you have to do. And uh, I was told that I had to not speak until the Queen spoke to me and that I curtsy as I get to her. And then she'll tell me when that my time's up because she'll push my hand away when she sh- shakes my hand and then she'll push it away. And then I have to walk backwards. And then I have to curtsy again and then I go off. Right. And wow. I, my friends had been taking bets with me about who would be giving me the award because we didn't think for a minute it was going to be the Queen. Um, I mean, we didn't. We knew it wasn't going to be Harry because he's already left the country. Um, we knew it wasn't going to be Andrew because he was about to have his head chopped off in the Tower of London. <laughs> and so we were saying, well, will it be Charles? Will it be William? Will it be Princess Anne? And I went into the cloakroom to put my hat on. When I got there, I was just coming out of the cloakroom. My boys were waiting down the end of the Buckingham Palace corridor. And um, I said, oh, do you know who it is that's doing the awards today? And she just very casually said, oh, yes, it's the Queen today. Mm. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how excited I was. 
So, um, yeah, so when I got in front of her, instead of curtsying, I said to her, I am so excited that it's you. I didn't even say ma'am. I just said, I'm so excited it's you. And she, she gave a little smile. Well, I'm sure she did. I mean, quite right as well. Quite right. And you deserve to say exactly what you what you wanted to. But and what was that like? What was it like in Buckingham Palace? Um, oh my gosh, so so palatial. Um, much more so than I imagined it would be, if that's possible. All red and gold. Um, yeah, just absolutely an amazing experience. And then I hope that you and your boys did celebrate after. We did. We went. Um, We'd already arranged to meet up with some uh, really close friends of mine in a pub in London. So um, so we all met up there and, uh, yeah, had some champagne. It was oh, lovely. I'm sure you did. I hope you had lots. And that, you know, I mean, obviously for you, I know it's the, 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 the teenagers that came with you and they left. And, you know, especially the ones that have gone on to live lives that perhaps they wouldn't have lived without you. I know that is your biggest sense of achievement I do know that but the when you have when you had that moment there and like you said you know your friends in the past are like what are you doing Andy and you know you must have had moments and your wobbles and you stuck with it you really did but when you sort of there and you've got your MBE and you sat with your sons and it's all turned out very well that must have been a very special moment for you yes I was glad I didn't have to start at the beginning again <laughs> I bet you were I, I was glad I was safe and all in one piece <laughs> yeah you did it you can shut you know you can shut your bedroom door now and you can just have a nice bath yeah. and not worry too much about things yeah which is amazing yeah. so who would you like to thank for your acknowledgements Andy who would you like to thank who have helped you along the way because I know I mean lots of people so many people would thank you but who would you like to thank well, of course, my boys, first and foremost, of course, it has to be. I couldn't have done it without them. Um, and I had I had two very, very special supervising social workers. One was Patricia McManaman and the other one was Aileen College. And uh, they, 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 they looked after me. Although, you know, there might have been times when they said to me, really, you've gone as far as you can go with this young person. You need to call it a day. They, they still didn't force me to. They still believed me when I said, I've got a little bit more that I can do with them. Just, you know, just give me a little bit more time. Don't make me do this. And they did. They did. So I couldn't have done it without them. Um, and all my friends and my neighbours, my neighbours in Rock Road in Cainsham, um, went through so much with the behaviour of my foster kids. Um, and I was waiting for any day that they would be getting a petition up to get me out of the road. Uh, but I never got it. And so to all my neighbours, yeah, to them as well. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So you're, I mean, this, uh, you can give so much advice. You really can. I'm sure you get fed up with people keep asking you for it, but you just, you've been through so much with it all. So for me, normally, I normally ask about advice for next chapters. But first of all, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier with teenagers, you know, it is when you do feel locked in it and you're stuck and you think, oh my goodness, this is, you know, this has all gone wrong. They were these lovely children. I'm talking about teenagers that are not fostered, but sort of your own teenagers. You know, now you've come through it with your own children and with all the fostered ones. You know, what would you say to that to that um, mother or father who's there in the midst of it now and feeling, hang on, there's no end to this and I can't do anything right? But there is an end to it. Um, you know, no two days are the same. Nothing stays the same because if it does stay the same, it becomes stagnant. Um, so you have to move on. Um, 
I think it's more difficult. It's certainly more difficult with your own teenagers. And I mean, I've got teenage grandchildren now, and so I've gone through it with them as well. Um, and I probably give out too much advice to my to the parents of my teenage grandchildren, <laughs> to my own children, as it is now, um, because they're going to they're going to parent in their own way. And they and and actually, my son will say to me, you know, this is you're, you're talking about what you did, mum, with with foster children. Uh, and and this is my these are my own children and it's a different story altogether so i suppose i rode the waves of being um the birth parent to teenagers i re i actually do remember that the teenage years of my first teenager my first son my firstborn i didn't find that easy at all so how i ever imagined that i was going to be a foster carer of teenagers and do it successfully i don't know because i didn't I didn't get it right with my first teenager. Um, but as I said, when we were talking about it just now, if I could go back and give him his years all over again, I would I, I would love to be able to do that because I've learned so much along the way. And with your firstborn, even when they're when they are your firstborn, even if as the, as your first babies, you're you've you don't know what you're doing you're learning you get it better with your second one better with your third one but that first born child goes through much because we're practicing on them and when they hit their teenage years we're practicing on them all over again so i would say like i said to you before pick pick your battles don't don't worry about the small things they they, they don't have to turn out to be you know a big fight and and uh, cause bad atmospheres in the in the house just just zoom in on the things that really really matter and they're really really important and nothing stays the same forever no and you obviously have um so much empathy which we saw when you worked in the soup kitchen you know all through with your with the teenagers and with your own children as well and this that's so important isn't it andy to have this empathy and, and also to, with your own children as well and, and my grandchildren you have to get behind their eyes. You have to be able to see things how they're seeing them, which are very, very different from the way that you're seeing them. So try to get behind their eyes and see how they're looking at situations and how they're feeling. And then you're you're halfway there. Okay, that is very good advice. I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna try that myself. And when you mm -hmm. say, so if someone's listening to this and they actually are, you know, the idea of fostering does appeal to them. You know, it really does. What would you say to that person? What would be the first step? Or, you know, what would you say to someone? Because you must have lots of people say, oh, I quite like the idea of it. You know, but then perhaps there it, there it ends. What would you say to that person? I'd say make the first move and not worry about the thought that you've, by making that first move, that you've committed yourself. So don't, don't think about commitment immediately. Just make the first move and inquire. Um, and then you can talk to um, social workers, uh, who can explain in depth to you what it entails and how much support and training that you'll get. Um, but make that first move. You can back out after you've made that first move. If by talking to the social workers, you think, oh gosh, I didn't, it wasn't even thinking about that. No, I don't think this is for me. But I'm sure that when they've spoken to the social workers and they realize they're not doing it on their own, there's a whole team of support around them that they will get training before they get their first young person. Um, oh gosh, I'd say, just go and do it. It's the best job ever. Do it, do it, do it. 
Mm, don't have this empty don't have this empty nest syndrome you know when your children are gone off to university um use all of your experience and all of the love that you have to give and give give one other person an opportunity a chance and you've had such you know i know that you've you you know you you're so proud of everything you've done but also you've had such a rich life for what you've done if someone is listening to this and this is not talking about fostering it's something else they're they're sitting you know and you you've seen it you've seen all these um teenagers who have come a lot often from broken homes you've seen them products of so much unhappiness a lot of the time so if someone's listening to this and they they're not feeling happy in themselves that's not saying that their home is broken up but just the fact that they're not really doing what they really want to do be it their work or you know the way that they're living they're perhaps working in a job they don't really like and deep down they know they want to do something else but they're not entirely sure what they want to do or how to go about it what would you say to that person who feels that they're not really living the life they want to live yet but there's still time you know there's still time for you to be able to um to do whatever it is that you want to do and um you might get to you might get to that goal by taking small steps at first or you might have an opportunity to zoom straight in and totally turn your life around from one career to another but don't sit and ponder over it um you know all of us we've lost a couple of years with covid don't lose any more time um just be brave and just take that next step that you need because life is um it's like you come up to uh, a junction at the end of a road there's a signpost there it's telling you different choices of which road to go down so it is in life um and you've you probably all of you have been at the end of the road and the signpost has been there and you've chosen the path that you thought was the best one that was for you well, guess what? It may not have been. And you might have lost your way down that way. So come back to that signpost and choose another option. Um, you know, life's exciting. So don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just take take that chance. Mm-hmm. Well, and so I hope now, Andy, that I mean, you've given such amazing advice and I hope we will all take the chances after listening to you because you took a chance and look at what you've done and achieved it's just absolutely incredible I do hope you get a little bit of time now that you can do exactly what you want in a home with your doors all completely unlocked Um, and Andy Hyder MBE thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest on the next chapter and I've so much enjoyed it thank you Ellie so much for asking me bye-bye So there you are, Andy Hyder, truly one of the most remarkable people I've ever interviewed and I feel so honoured to have shared her story with you. I took from that, well, just take that first step, give it a go, get stuck in. I love that, that we can arrive at the crossroads but just because we feel stuck going down the wrong path doesn't mean we can't change and try another. Thank you so much, Andy, for being such a fabulous guest. Now, if you want to keep up to date with me and my next chapter, you can find my details at my website, elliebarkerwrites.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. You're listening to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker, a flower pot production. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, I hope this conversation has warmed your soul. Keep thinking, keep with it. You can do it. I think you can, and Andy does too. Speak soon.